بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of Faxton's translation of Rumi. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, might as well. Yeah. And Fihi ma fihi, signs of the unseen. We're picking up on page four. Okay, go for it. Page six. Oh, page six. Yeah, I was even looking at page six. Um... My purpose was to make him understand, give alms, and humble himself before God, for most, for from a most exalted position he had come to a low state, even in which he should be hopeful. Okay, so one of the recurring themes in this whole discourse is, or is the question of what does it take for someone, uh, for their heart to open up, and and the the form of the discourse, which is a form of quite a bit of the book, is it's this conversation between um, a scholar and someone who owns the world. <clears throat> or more accurately, the conversation is between someone who owns the world, which is the prince or the emir, uh, uh, versus someone who is only focused on Allah, which is first the prophet, peace be upon him, or in theory, the, the type of scholar that we're speaking about in this text. And so we saw um, that, you know, different people have different needs to open up or uh, uh, different techniques uh, through which they can open their hearts. What works for one person doesn't work for another person. In the case of this Amir, he wanted to give everything in service to God, but he tried to force the world to work his own way. And then it just kept, um, um, things kept going the wrong way. And so, so Rumi is, number one, telling him, okay, do not give up hope. Okay. Do not despair. And he's, uh, Rumi also wants him to give, here it says alms, so it's probably uh, zakat, but it might be sadaqa. And so we're saying another technique uh, to help your heart open up is to give sadaqa. Again, that works for some people, not for other people. And also, uh, he's saying to make him understand. For some people, their heart opens up uh, by just understanding you know, greater reality or how the world works. And for some people, you know, they, we mentioned before, some people need to hit rock bottom, but for other people, if they hit rock bottom, they just hide from it by being more arrogant. But another way to, for some people to open their hearts is for them to humble themselves before God. So sadaqah is one thing, but even just humbling yourself uh, before God. So it's, it would be as though I'm saying, okay, uh, Allah, uh, I don't know if you exist or not. I want to believe that you exist. And, and you take an attitude of humility. And so the way he described a closed heart is that it's a heart with a knot tied around it. Okay. And so the question is, what technique works for a particular person to break that knot. And so that's what is being discussed quite a bit in, in this particular discourse. And that's also a big theme of the way of the Sufis anyway, meaning what's preventing me from getting closer to Allah, even if I believe in Allah and I'm praying everything, those will be things within me. And so those knots inside my heart might be, or tying up my heart might be uh, experiences that I've had, uh, they might relate to choices that I made in my life. They might relate to things I don't understand. 
you know, all kinds of different things will create those knots. Um, it could just be from arrogance. And so the overall idea of the way the Sufis is how do you figure out what those knots are and then how do you untie them or how do you snap those knots? Because everyone's natural disposition is to believe in God. And everyone's natural disposition overall is to be good. God works in mysterious ways. Things may look good outwardly, but there may be evil contained inside. Let no one be deluded by pride that he himself has conceived good ideas or done good deeds. Okay, so, so God works in mysterious ways. Um, that has become such a cliche now that it kind of loses its meaning. So when we today mean God works in mysterious ways, we're kind of saying that, okay, we have no explanation, but God does whatever he wants. Okay. In the context of this, we're saying that, okay, that Allah Ta'ala, uh, different people's hearts open up towards him in different ways. Okay. And that is part of the mystery. You'd like to think, okay, everyone goes through steps A, B, C, and then suddenly they become super Muslim. But one of the blessings of the Sahabas is that all the different Sahabas became Muslims for different reasons. Right? So why did Hamza become Muslim? Do you remember? So, so the Prophet, peace upon him, is praying in front of the Kaaba. And Abu Jahal and his cronies are, are dumping, you know, waste on top of him. Like goat carcasses and stuff like that on top of him. And then they start attacking. Actually, I'm mixing two stories. But uh, some of the Abu Jahal's people start attacking the Prophet, peace be upon him. And Hamza, may Allah be pleased with him, arrives. Uh, and he, he pushes back against Abu Jahl and his people, saying, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of fighting is this? You're fighting against an unarmed man. There's no honor in that. And then he just announces right then and there, his religion is my religion. And, and so he, it seems as though what motivated him was to defend Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to defend his nephew. Okay. And we all know why Omar became Muslim. Why did he become Muslim? Because but we only remember half the story. Why did he become Muslim? The story that we remember, I mean, the half of the story that I remember, because when he hit his sister and he saw the blood and uh -huh. then it opened his heart, and then he wanted to read the Quran, but she wouldn't let him uh -huh. before he made the do. Uh -huh. And so then finally he does, uh, he does uh, uh, Taha, right? And so you, you did tell like uh, the key elements of the story. Now think about what's, what's part of that. Uh, he reads Surah Taha, okay, that changes him. But prior to that, he's feeling remorse for hitting his sister, right? And why is he upset with his sister? Because he believes so much in what he took as a truth. And so he saw his sister, on the one hand, he couldn't make sense of why his sister is betraying that truth. And also, she's standing up to him, right? I mean, because like when she won't let him touch the pages, she's basically saying, you're, you're dirty, okay? And that perhaps also opened up, you know, was another key to opening up his heart. See what I'm saying? You know. And what's interesting is that uh, we know that the Prophet, peace be upon him, made dua for one of the two Omars to become Muslim. Okay, one is Omar bin Hashim, 
who we, who we call Abu Jahl, and then Omar ibn al-Khattab. And so Omar, because of his love for truth, um, he wanted to kill the renegade, Uthabillah, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And then the guy comes to him, you know, saying, well, about your own house. And perhaps the answer to the Prophet's prayer, peace be upon him, was that Allah Ta'ala made this man run into Omar. And then Omar, then, you know, he's surprised, so he goes and visits his sister. Right. And so another key point there is sometimes someone's heart opens up uh, because someone's praying for them. And so Omar's, Omar's story is very, very wonderful because of all the different things that happen on the pathway to him opening his heart. You know, and it's often easier, easiest to understand in reverse order. He reads Surah Taha. Um, he does wudu. Wudu perhaps also contributed to opening up his heart. Okay. Um, he feels remorse for hitting his sister or the fact that his sister has embraced us. He's trying to make sense of because she's, she's not an idiot. And on top of that, she's standing up to him. Okay. Sometimes for some people who are arrogant, a way to combat their arrogance is to be arrogant back to them. Okay. Other people, if they're arrogant and they have power, like a pharaoh, then often the technique is to be very, very gentle with them. Because you might speak very tough, uh, very forcefully to them, and then out of revenge, they might go and destroy all your people. And so the point is that, uh, that uh, how Allah Ta'ala operates the universe, starting with how he opens hearts, uh, is different for everyone. And that's one of the important things for us in terms of all the different ways the Sahabas became Muslim. You know, who was it? I think it was Abu Dhar, someone who became Muslim from one of the, the bandit tribes. So there were, so the way the Quraysh was organized, or the way the Arabian Peninsula was organized, the Quraysh were the top tribe. And then they had uh, uh, treaties with other tribes who would be responsible for protecting all the roads. Because there's bandits waiting to, waiting to hijack um, the caravans and such. And so I think it was Abu Dhar, uh, who was part of one of those, uh, those um, uh, bandit clans. And so when he became Muslim, the Prophet, peace be upon him, was surprised, apparently, that a person from that tribe became Muslim because those people were known for being just bandits and criminals. Was he the one where the Prophet, when he was traveling, and then the key called out to him, and instead because like he was known to be a thief and a bandit, he called out to him and... Instead of calling him like a low name, he called out and he said like, "Oh, you honorable person." Fascinating. That uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, but um, okay. that could be also part of it that the Prophet peace be upon him was speaking with respect. I mean, this uh, this you've raised an important point that a lot of times when people you know all over throughout you know throughout the years who've been coming to me uh, to learn about Islam, one of the most important things is that you speak to them with compassion and respect. And for a lot of people in our culture. Being in greater American society, often that's what opens up people's hearts, right? So you can also find patterns in terms of what works in different cultures. So then uh, he was saying things may look good outwardly, but there may be evil contained inside, okay? which also then applies the opposite too, that there may be things that look wretched on the outside, but actually are full of good. And so he's making the point that Reality is hidden by layers and layers of, for lack of a better term, illusion that obscure reality. 
And most of those layers are actually inside of us. You know, there's a, there's a, a really ridiculous joke that I'll share <laughs> that this reminds me of. So these three scholars are walking along, and then they see this woman, this beautiful woman, who is not dressed appropriately, walk by. And the first scholar looks at her and says, Astaghfirullah, right? And because he's just looking, and this is what he's interpreting. The second one is saying, Subhanallah, right? And what does the third one say? Inshallah, he gets, he gets hopeful. <laughs> but the lesson there is that you have three people who are, who are seeing the same thing, and they're interpreting three different ways. And the point to take from that is that a lot of, much of how we interpret reality or how much reality is hidden is taking place inside of us. Yeah. It doesn't mean all of it is. You have media, which uh, totally obscures reality and such. But he's saying things may look good outwardly, but might actually contain evil inside. And likewise, then he says, let no one be deluded by pride that he himself has conceived good ideas or done good things. Meaning, don't take pride in the good ideas you have or the good accomplishments you've done. Allah Ta'ala made it happen. Allah Ta'ala allowed it to happen. Or Allah Ta'ala set up the scenario through which you were able to do the good. So for example, me doing the work that I do in terms of chaplaincy and teaching and everything, if I start thinking that this is my success, that I'm leaving out all the things that made all this happen. We're living in a time where people really are trying to learn about Islam. Okay. Um, I wouldn't be here had my parents not migrated here. I wouldn't be here had not parents not given birth to me. All those things, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that are in play that facilitated me doing what I do. Okay, so let's go, let's continue. If everything were as it seemed. If everything were as it seemed, the prophet would not have cried out with such illuminated and illuminating perspicacity. Show me things as they are. You make things appear beautiful when in reality they are ugly. You make things appear ugly when in reality they are beautiful. Show us, therefore, each thing as it is, lest we fall into a snare and be ever errant. Okay, another way for... Uh, a person's heart to open is dua, right? So we're taught that if you come uh, walking to Allah, then what? Come Allah comes running to you, right? So that's a, a promise that's being made, that if you go walking to Allah, He will come running to you. And so this is a really good dua. The first part is, Allahumma arini haqiqati ashia kamahiya. And so, O oh Allah, show me the reality of things as they are. And that is a very common du'a that he, that he recites. And so we're saying that the Prophet, peace be upon him, and it says he's illuminated with illuminating perspicacity. Perspicacity basically means you see, you have, you're super perceptive. Okay. And so even the Prophet, peace be upon him, who might be the most perceptive person ever to live, uh, peace be upon him, um, he's still making this du'a. And so this is another good du'a to make for someone to help their heart open up. Show me the reality of things as they are. Good. Or you can make the entire thing. You make things appear beautiful when in fact they're ugly, and you make the ugly, you make things appear ugly when in fact they're beautiful. So show us each thing as it is so we don't get trapped Good. by the snares of reality, which we'll talk about in a bit. Okay, well, let's uh, continue. 
um, now your judgment, however good and clear it may be, is not better than his. And he spoke as he did. Don't rely on your every thought and opinion, but humble yourself before God and fear him. Okay, a lot of stuff in this sentence too. So, when he's saying your judgment is good and clear as it may be, is not better than the prophet, peace be upon him. That is also a way to open your heart to acknowledge and internalize that the prophet, peace be upon him, is smarter and has better judgment. Like, uh, one thing that was always part of my thinking, uh, not necessarily even consciously, is that the author of the Quran is smarter than I am. And a lot of times, people have the attitude, whether or not they admit it to themselves, they think they're smarter than the author of the Quran. And I'm not saying that as a virtue of myself, for whatever reason, that's how I felt. But the point is, another way for me to help my heart open up is to internalize and acknowledge that the prophet, peace on his judgment, is better than mine and is more clear than mine. That's a type of humility. Okay. And just like when we say Alif Lam Mim at the beginning of Al-Baqarah, you know, we often say, okay, no one knows what this means, but Allah, uh, but Allah does. But deeper, what are we saying? We're saying there's limits to my knowledge that Allah is not limited by. And so, if I believe that Alif Lamim is the word of Allah, or that Allah uh, knows what it means and I don't, then I've automatically begun to humble myself, intellectually. Right. And another thing about the Prophet, peace be upon him, he spoke as he did. Uh, one thing that often causes a disconnect within us is that we say one thing but do another thing. Right? And that actually affects our heart, because that's the behavior of hypocrisy, potentially. Right? Um, or the Sahaba, many of the Sahaba would be cautious about learning anything more until they're already establishing what they knew. Okay? So one of the challenges is that, you know, you know when, mashallah, you're given a lot of uh, knowledge, the challenge is to then really start putting that into practice. Okay? And it doesn't mean that if I'm not practicing my knowledge, my heart is, is automatically getting uh, tied up, but the risk is there. Don't re- wait, did we finish yeah. that? Oh, okay. I'm going to read that, yeah. Oh. Don't rely on your every thought and opinion, but humble yourself before God and fear Him. Okay, no more heavy stuff. Don't rely on your every thought and opinion. So, again, on, in the simple sense, that seems uh, obvious, but what else are we saying here? That just because I have a thought in my mind doesn't mean it's automatically true. Okay. So if I have a thought of, in my mind about Allah, doesn't mean it's automatically true. Okay. And what he's not mentioning here is shaitan, right? Obviously, shaitan is there to also whisper things into our hearts. And the point is that some of the thoughts I have and some of the opinions I have just might be scattered random thoughts. This is how often suspicion builds, whether it's suspicion about a person or sometimes we don't realize we have suspicion about Allah. So one suspicion about Allah is maybe Allah, you don't exist. Or... So a suspicion about Allah, maybe, maybe you don't care about me. Those are suspicions. And so they'll originate in a thought within ourselves, and then we'll hold on to it, and then we'll make it grow. So how do you override that? This goes back to humbling yourself before Allah, as well as fearing Him. And the deeper point here is you're taking control of your thoughts. Like, uh, sometimes I'll have some students who, 
they'll start thinking something that's always negative, and then they'll start thinking more negative things about that, and then even more, and then they'll start getting overwhelmed. Like a person is applying for a job, and then they'll suddenly get worried, what if I say something stupid in the interview? And then what if I say something stupid in the interview and then I embarrass myself? And then I don't get the job. And then, you know, they'll develop a whole line of thought and they just wind up overwhelming themselves. And so um, part of being conscious or part of taqwa is to take control of your thinking. Okay. Those thoughts will still pop in your mind, but you're becoming much more conscious and serious about your thoughts. Good. So fear him may here be have taqwa of Allah or it might actually be fear him. Let's finish it off. Such was my purpose in speaking to the Barvana. However, he applied this verse and this interpretation to his own strategy, saying, At this time, when we are moving our troops, we must not rely on them. Even defeated, we must not despair of him in time of fear and helplessness. He applied my words to his own design, whereas my purpose was as I have said. Okay, this is also a very interesting, subtle point. So the, the Amir <coughs> is trying to listen to Rumi, but he didn't quite listen to him. So Rumi is saying, essentially, submit yourself, your thinking, to Allah. Okay? And don't try to think that you are controlling everything. So it's kind of like, uh, you're the one who shows up for the Battle of Badr. You're not the one who threw, it was Allah who threw. You're not the one who, who hits the target, it is Allah Ta'ala who decides whether or not your arrow hits the target. But what the prince did is he said, all right, we're going, to strat we're going to strategize and move our troops, and uh, we will not rely upon our troops to, to win. Uh, and even if we lose, we don't despair of him. So what's taking place? It's kind of like when someone's saying inshallah, but they don't really mean it. Right? So will you do this for me? Inshallah. So you know the joke. Like some people mean no. They're too afraid to say no. But uh, when you're saying inshallah, you're basically saying yes, God willing, which is sort of like saying yes, and only Allah will prevent me from doing it. Okay. That's, I mean, that's what you're saying when you're saying inshallah. And so it's kind of like he's saying, you know, inshallah will win. Okay. Like, you know, God's on our side. Okay. And so he's, he hasn't really digested what Rumi's saying. Okay. This is a much more subtle point that takes time to think about. So what did Rumi want him to do? So all the other things that we mentioned before, like for example, there's no indication that that the that the that the Amir humbled himself before Allah. Okay. Uh, there's no indication that he gave zakat. There's no indication of dua being made. So it's like the action at the end could have been the same, but it was just the approach to get there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So summing up. As we said, this whole discourse is, is at one level, it's, about the, it's contrasting the person who owns the world versus the person who has surrendered completely to Allah. And then deeper than that, it's about pathways uh, to open up a person's heart. And that's very much what this entire, uh, the way of the Sufis is all about. How do I open up my heart? Any questions? Okay, inshallah. Maybe you'll remember next time, inshallah. Okay.
we'll stop here. And then uh, we'll continue next time, inshallah, with discourse number two. And then, yeah, if you think of any questions, then bring them up in the future, inshallah. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Wa akhir da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alamin.